what does it mean for me to actually be a Potawatomi woman then? What does it mean for me to be a Potawatomi mother? What does it mean for me to be a Christian then, if this isn't what I thought it was, you know? Is Jesus really white? All of these questions started just bubbling up and it's a beautiful thing, but it, it made me, and it's a hard thing and it forces us to lean into the nuance of what it means simply to be human, really. Hi friends, I'm Amy Julia Becker, and this is Love is Stronger Than Fear, a podcast about pursuing hope and healing in the midst of social division. In this season, we're talking about how we can respond to the brokenness in our own lives and in our society with our heads, hearts, and hands. And today I'm talking with Caitlin Curtis. Caitlin is a beautiful writer, beautiful thinker, beautiful person. She's a member of the Potawatomi Nation. She's a Christian. And today I'm talking with her about racial and religious identity, holidays and traditions, and how to enter into an expansive understanding of the love of God, creator, throughout our lives. I'm talking today with Caitlin Curtis, author of Native Identity, Belonging, and Rediscovering God. Caitlin, welcome. Thank you. So you've written a beautiful and thoughtful memoir, and your subtitle kind of says it all, Identity, Belonging, and Rediscovering God. And I want to get to talk about all of those things uh, today, but I thought we'd start with identity, both as a way to introduce the book, but also as a way to introduce you to our audience here, because you write a lot about um, how you think of yourself, how you think of yourself as a woman, how you think of yourself as a Christian, how you think of yourself in terms of racial identity, and how that has actually changed over the years. So I'd love to hear you just describe who you are, and also, again, how your conception of yourself has changed um, over the course of the years. Yeah, so um, I am a Potawatomi woman. Um, how I would describe sort of my background is I come from what I would call a mixed culture or mixed ethnicity um, family. Um, my father is Potawatomi and my mother is um, not native, is um, descended from European peoples. And so um, I am I'm a mixture of those things. And I think that, um, you know, growing up, my identity was just fused so tightly to Christianity. And that was really like I remember times when I was younger that 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 is really the only the defining thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm a girl or or I'm a woman, a young woman, but I'm a Christian. I'm a yeah. Christian. You know, that was really everything that I was. And when that happens, you know, in that way that um, your faith becomes the catch all for your identity, we lose the nuance of what it means to be human in a lot of ways. Religion, you know, has a role in our lives to help us form identity and create those connections with people. But when it is a more legalistic religion, it can consume. And with Christianity, um, it's paired with assimilation. A lot of the time American white Christianity is. And so I learned to assimilate. I learned to not listen to myself. Mm. I learned to, you know, sort of be subject to my leaders, subject to men, to God, who was a very patriarchal God. And so that's kind of what I learned. And when I started writing actually my first book, which is called Glory Happening, um, that came out in 2017. And as I was writing that book, I was just starting to sort of ask new questions like, Mm. God, he, you know, could God be just mystery? Could God be a wider understanding than what I grew up with? Things like that. And 
I found so much freedom in finally asking some of those questions. It, it helped me because it helped me know what I'd always known, like deep inside me, I think, but it helped me recognize that there's so much more expansion to who God is or what religion or spirituality might be. And I needed that sort of freedom. And what came with that then was, then I started asking all these other questions. Well, what does it mean for me to actually be a Potawatomi woman then? What does it mean for me to be a Potawatomi mother? What does it mean for me to be a Christian then? If this isn't what I thought it was, you know, is Jesus really white? All of these questions started just bubbling up and it's a beautiful thing, but it, it made me, and it's a hard thing and it forces us to lean into the nuance of what it means simply to be human really. And so over the years, I've, you know, sometimes we have to use certain terms to help us, right? Um, to help us identify who or how we are in the mm-hmm. world. Um, but also it's just, for me, it's been this feeling of expansiveness that um, I get to, you know, examine and question so many parts of, of who I am. And that that required me stepping out of some of those religious boxes that that kept me safe in a way for a long time, but I needed then that's the whole, you know, deconstruction is you step out and then you examine what you were a part of. And that's, that's a very natural thing for us to do as adults. And so I needed to do that, especially when I became a mother for me, I think that's what kind of cracked some of that open for me and um, helped me just, I don't know, begin to identify in new ways. So I'd love to hear more about the Potawatomi aspect of your identity, but also of your journey, right? Like that sense, at least from reading your book of, on the one hand, I I assume being a citizen of the Potawatomi Nation means that was true when you were born. Yeah, yeah. But that was not something that if I met you as a teenager, you would have said, yep, this is who I am, right? right? So um, how? Why was that not something you would have told me when I was meeting you as a 13 year old? And why is it also, you know, yes, I'm a Potawatomi mother. I'm a, you know, how has that, how has that come to be um, a part? And again, I, I love what you've said already, just because I think so many people are exploring so many of these questions. And for you, there's this layer, which we're going to hopefully start talking through of not only what does it mean to be a Christian? Is Jesus white? What is it? But also what does it mean to be a Potawatomi woman and a Christian? Uh, A Potawatomi Christian? Do those things go together? I mean, those are all, I think, just rich and important questions that not only are helpful, obviously, in your own life, but even for someone like me, where, you know, I've got European ancestry, and I'm asking many of these questions as well, because I'm trying to figure out what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be a child of God? What does it mean to be faithful to the people that I am living with? So sorry, that's a long way of backing myself back into this question about um, your formation as a uh, person who now would say, I am a Potawatomi, uh, citizen of a Potawatomi nation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really grateful that you obviously were like, you've always been Potawatomi because I think that sometimes people are like, oh, you, you know, suddenly realized you were at this one point in life. Like, no, I, I've obviously always been Potawatomi and my family, you know, my father has been Potawatomi, but there are a few factors that I think that, um, need to be pointed to. Um, and one of those is just the trauma, intergenerational trauma of indigenous people. Um, my grandma, um, 
did not talk about being Potawatomi. It was mm. not something we discussed. Um, my father worked for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which means he's a tribal police officer is, is basically how to put that. And so while that was a part of our family's identity, it wasn't something we explored. You know, I didn't know that we had our own language. I didn't know that our tribe is from the Great Lakes region of the United States. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that we call this land Turtle Island. I didn't know we had our own stories. You know, there was, um, for years, indigenous cultures have been constantly wiped out by colonization that's paired government and church institutions together to do this job. Um, and they've done it well. And so we have, we have this legacy of, um, of silence, of not wanting to talk about who we are. And so I think that's a huge part of it. And then also for, so for me in my life, you know, not having that foundation of, of really knowing how to explore my identity and then being really sort of entrenched into the church. Um, as a teenager, you know, I was like in the purity movement, you know, went on the mission trips. I was all in, right. Like I said, being a Christian with my identity mm-hmm. and it, and it focused how I saw the world. And so it also, I saw the Potawatomi parts of myself. Like I can split myself up. I, I separated that part of me. Um, I don't think I did it on purpose, but I learned to do it. And that's what assimilation does is, you know, like I say in my book, um, the church wants what is white in me, but not what is native in me. Mm-hmm. There is this, this part where I knew, you know, if I'm going to show up, uh, talking about our culture and our traditions, we've seen it happen before and we're called heathen or we're called animistic or we're, you know, they're all, all of the stereotypes and tropes of what indigenous people, that's what colonization has done is said, you are not children of God. You need to assimilate or you need to accept Jesus and take on our Christian faith or we will kill you or we will wipe your people out or, you know, it was, it was a forced colonization. And so, um, so for me, I think that just naturally happened where I didn't know what it meant to be Potawatomi. I didn't know what it meant to connect with my tribe or, or my people or other indigenous people. I had no real groundwork for that, I guess. And my father had left our family when I was nine. And so my parents divorced when I was young. And I, that's a very critical time of a child's development. And, and I think that that also just, you know, the, the trauma of that. Um, made it difficult for me to find my footing and my identity, you know? And so the church became my safe place, which is good. Like I need, I needed a safe place. I had really beautiful people in my life that I loved and who loved me, but I can also now look back and say, okay, there are some things here also that kept me from fully being who I am. And to be able to hold the tension of both of those things is really difficult, but that's also what it means to be human. And so that's part of the journey. And part of why I wrote my book was to sort of recognize all of this together. So what was it like for you? Was there, I mean, I'm assuming you did not wake up one morning and say, I am going to go on a quest to discover what it means to be Potawatomi. But at the same time, I know you have traveled to the Great Lakes and you have started to learn the language. And there are these aspects of like, no, I'm really, I'm going to do this. Like I'm doubling down on, on understanding this. And so how did that happen? And how have you gone about it? I mean, over the course of, and and when, like at what point in your life were you like, wait a second, this is something I need to actually, I want to because intentional about? Mm-hmm. I studied um, social work in, in college in my undergrad, and I 
there were those questions that kept kind of creeping up in me, you know, there would be like a section or class where we would talk about indigenous people or something. And I would be like, that's, that's me. But also I don't know how to understand that that's me. And, you know, there would just be, there are these tensions inside myself that I don't know if I had a place to, to ask those questions or process what that meant. Um, but so those, you know, if you want to call them seeds were being planted, um, you know, late high school, early college, where I was asking some of those questions. And um, I think then, like I said, when I had children, you know, it switched to, okay, well, uh, how do, how do I help them know who they are? You know, um, you know, they have a, a father who's of, um, German ancestry and they have me and who am I and what am I giving them? Right. And so, um, I think that that also kind of led me to start asking some questions inside myself and then, you know, we had this, I write about in the book, this sort of experience where we were out hiking in um, Georgia. We lived in Atlanta at the time. And right. so we went out hiking one day and, and I did have this sort of moment where I truly think that, you know, my ancestors just sort of met me in that space and God mystery creator met me in that space and said, this is who you are mm-hmm. and you get to decide who you want to be. And, and so, and then for me, it just, it never went away, you know, and and that's just been the journey for me, but it, it required a lot of uh, painful investigation, you know, and it still does of uh, why, why did I not um, lean into this when I was younger? Why couldn't I? Why, why the trauma? Why intergenerational trauma? Why assimilation? Why all of these things, right? Why colonization? And then it just leads to more questions. And I'm still asking those questions. Like, I don't really, you know, uh, I don't know if I f- know how to be Potawatomi and a Christian. It's mm-hmm. it's very, very messy every single day, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I exist in it, but I don't really know what it, <laughs> what it means all the time. And that's okay. Like, even in my book, I, you know, I've had people say, you leave us with a lot more questions than answers. Like, I, I didn't write a book to give people answers on how to navigate their identity, um, because that, that's just not, that's not who I am. What I want to do is help people ask the questions in the first mm-hmm. place mm-hmm. about America, about Christianity, about who they are. And that's about belonging, right? About identity. Those are the things I want to help people just begin to ask their questions. And I think that's a really important place for us to start. Yeah, your um, comments are sparking so many thoughts in my own brain that I'm trying to decide where I want to go. Because uh, for me, similarly, having kids prompted a lot of questions. I grew up in a small town in the South, even though my family is from Connecticut. And so when I was thinking about raising my own kids, I went back to my childhood where I had asked no questions. And almost especially because we moved when I was 10. So we moved before those time periods where you start asking questions about your life. It had become this like idealized, beautiful, perfect world in my memory. And as I started to think back on the severe racial and economic disparities within our town that I participated in, in every aspect of my being, the way in which this church that I loved growing up in had, you know, participated in segregation and in injustice. It was it was a really hard process, but it was similarly my children who prompted that. And then from there, thinking about um, the ways in which I think people in Connecticut and broadly in the Northeast can 
feel as though, oh, we didn't have slavery. We didn't, we can be removed from this. And then looking at, I mean, literally I drive around my area and it's like, oh, you know, Nanawag, Wampanoag, Connecticut, like all of these words that, I mean, again, I have started to think, I do know where those come from, not deeply and intimately, but as you said, the just being silenced to not think about things, to not ask, wait, where does that come from? And why are there no longer, at least in my town, people who are associated with the names of the streets and the towns and certainly the rivers, I mean, especially the rivers and the regions in our area. So I just, anyway, what you were just saying, I think is so important for all of us in terms of our connection to place and to people and to history, even when those questions are painful ones. At the same time, I do think there's that sense, as you said, of like, there's a freedom um, and an expansiveness, I think that can come, even though it can be kind of scary. So um, I'd love to ask you a little bit more about uh, the Christianity piece of this, because there was a phrase actually towards the end of your book that I really appreciated, um, where you said that often evangelism is erasure and a listening relationship is something altogether different. And I was thinking about both of those things, the ways in which evangelism, which we might need to define. So let's start with that. Like what's evangelism and how is it that that uh, works to erase, to be erasure? Um, and, And is there any way to participate in evangelism without participating in erasure. So that, that's, that's what I'm wondering about. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so in the, in the, um, in the framework that I grew up in, I grew up Southern Baptist. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Wednesday nights we would go to church and we would go do door to door evangelism. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, you're literally going to try to save people's souls. That is what, you know, you're going uh, to get them to come to church and to get them to accept Jesus if we feel that they need to. Right. So it was um, literally like, you know, if they had visited the church before they would put their name in. So we would go in these groups praying, you know, we pray in the car on the drive, go into these people's homes, ask if we can visit with them, give this like spiel of our, you know, faith journey of when mm-hmm. we accepted Christ, all these things. And then you turn to these people that you don't even know, you don't know their story. You don't know anything about them. And you're like, so do you want to accept Christ? And um, in my opinion, that's quite ridiculous. I understand that people still practice this and it's still a part of their faith journey. But one of the the people I did this with was a girl who went to my school. So she went to my junior high. She's one of the most popular girls. And and I think how ridiculous it was that I didn't know anything about her journey, but I, I want, I wanted, um, the weird thing about all of this, about Christianity and this, this kind of faith is, is that somehow you can try to do it out of love, but it's also not love. It is erasure. Right. So I want, I love people and I want them to be okay. I want them to have what they need. And at the same time, I'm participating in a religion that, that in a lot of ways does the opposite of that and erases their stories and simply puts them as a, are you saved or not saved? Do you come to our church or do you not come to our church? Mm -hmm. And that's, I know that's not always the case, but as we talk about these systems of what we do with evangelism, a lot of the time that is what we do. It's that street evangelism kind of thing. And, and um, it, it does erase, it erases so much. Um, Can we have thoughtful 
reciprocal relationships with one another where the end goal isn't like, can I get you to heaven or not? You know, um, I think that that so much of that put people in this weird, like almost a one dimensional box. And that's not what humans are. You know, we have so much life around us. We have so many stories to tell. And so um, that's still a hard thing for me to sort of reconcile in my mind is can that, can that particular thing be redeemed? I think that that particular way of evangelizing can be really damaging um, and unrealistic in the world we live in. But, um, but can we just have relationship with one another where we care for one another the way that we're supposed to? I believe that that's possible. Yeah, I'm thinking back to a similar kind of time in my life when I was asking about uh, having grown up in a more evangelical space. Um, And I remember I had these neighbors who were kind of in the spiritual but not religious camp, very kind yoga practitioners, friends of ours. And I was praying for them once and I just was like kind of um, I had a sense of distaste with my own prayer. Because yeah. I was praying for them to get to know Jesus. But I was like, but I I actually, I do feel like I have something to offer. They were going through a hard time. like, And I was like, and this is what I have to offer. I do have a relationship with Jesus. But I am praying it as though you have nothing to offer me. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. that is where I finally realized, I'm like, that's what I'm uncomfortable with. Is not the idea that I have something to give. It's that I have nothing to receive, that I have no needs, and that I, because I know Jesus, have it all figured out. Like that attitude of like, I don't, I don't need anything and I've got all the answers. Um, I mean, I guess another way to call that is pro- name that is pride, but there's just not a posture of humility. And as you said, of like listening and receiving and recognizing the, again, the expansive nature of who God is. So I don't want to discount the, uh, truth and experience of knowing Jesus, of being a Christian, and of wanting to offer that to other people in an open-handed, right. I also know that I have things to receive type of way. But anyway, that moment just sticks with me as a moment of transition for my own thinking about evangelism um, mm-hmm. as like, okay, if that really means sharing the good news, well, then what what is it, how is it sharing the good news in your case, like to knock on someone's door and say, hey, without knowing you and without being invited, (laughs) can I check your name off as saved in some sort of cosmic book that somehow I am an arbiter of right now? Like, (laughs) who thought that made sense? Yeah. And on on the larger scale, it's hard um, for, I would say it's hard for most Americans and most Christians to recognize that that is an extension of colonization. Mm. Um, There is something called the Doctrine of Discovery, which was a a document that basically allowed people, especially Christian men, to come to this land. And in the name of God, they could take the land they wanted as long as it wasn't already Christian, right? So they're coming, they're seeing all these people and they're saying, oh, you're not, you're not one of us. You're not Christian. You know, you're heathen, you're savage. So we get to take your people and take your land and it becomes God's. And, uh, and, it, and there were times where it was like, you know, uh, sign this document that you've accepted the faith or, you know, speak, you know, speaking to people in a language they can't understand, forcing them to convert. I think that 
that so much of what we then adopted into our churches is extensions of those practices. And, and we don't often connect that where we're really uncomfortable with saying this is a type of violence. Um, but for indigenous people, it has always been a, a type of violence to force conversion to say convert or we take your land and we kill you convert or, or else is violence, you know, and, and that's been all done in the name of God for centuries. And that's something we can't ignore, you know? Well, and specifically in the name of the God of the Bible, right? Like it, it's not just some vague, but it's, it's been very specifically linked. Um, which brings me actually, there's this one place where you wrote, um, our Potawatomi words have so much meaning behind them. I'm not going to be able to pronounce it, but the word for America, which you. Uh, yeah. Chimokmankik. Thank you translates loosely to white person with long knives. And I get a little choked up even just like saying those words out loud. You also write about the importance of, again, like understanding language, understanding history, understanding place. And you talk about land acknowledgments, which um, I think is related again to this, the Potawatomi word for America. I'd love to hear you talk about um, the way in which what a land practice, a land acknowledgement practice is, but also why it's important in recovering a history that's been covered up. Yeah. I often get asked, especially in Christian spaces, like, how can we reconcile with indigenous people? And I don't have that answer because we haven't even acknowledged anything in the first place. You know, you can't reconcile something until you actually acknowledge it, you know, and, um, you know, American Christianity has not acknowledged its complicity in the, you know, genocide and colonization of indigenous peoples on a large scale, uh, or even in individual scales of institutions, it's not, that is not a common practice. And so, um, you know, land acknowledgements are just one thing, but they're also something that shouldn't be done lightly, like they should be done in the spirit of actually trying to understand Um, And so a land acknowledgement is basically, you know, you're naming whose land you're on. There are plenty of resources where you can do this. Also doing it with the acknowledgement that it's not like they used to be there and now they're gone. Like indigenous peoples are, we're still here. Uh, We're still around. Um, There have certainly been removals and violence done on on these lands, Um, but indigenous people are still here. And so to actually wherever you live to learn the, the full story of those people. Are, are they still here? Are they still tending to this land? Can they teach us something about it? Why are they gone? What happened? What violence was done toward them? How are they still, you know, reflecting their culture? How are they still honoring their ancestors by being here? What can they teach us? You know, some of these questions. And so um, land acknowledgements are a way to sort of, you know, you, you would do it like before an event, like when I travel to speak, I do try to do a land acknowledgement before I speak because I'm just reflecting to everyone there in the audience. This is the land that you're on. These are the people who have tended to this land. We don't get to just own this land because we're here now. Um, and it helps us to, to think of how we connect to the land itself, like the earth herself. How are we connecting to her? How are we connecting to the stories of this land? And so they can be a really helpful tool, but they can also be done poorly and without really um, the work of what it means to, you're acknowledging the stories that have often been covered up in our history books and in our in our churches. Like we're we're acknowledging that there has been violence done on this land, and so um, 
before we can get to reconciliation, are we honestly really coming to terms with the truth? You know, um, and I think that that's a really important thing that, that we need to ask ourselves if we're going to do actions like a land acknowledgement, um, because other nations do that. They do them in Canada. Um, they're done in other places that are settler colonial states. So a, a colonized, um, a colonized state settle, settler colonized. Um, but we don't practice it here regularly. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a question to ask why we don't and if we should. Yeah. And I think again, going back to that, um, loose translation for the word for America, white mm-hmm. person with long knives, I think, um, and even my just like initial response to that, which is sadness, right? Um, but th- like, it will be uncomfortable, at the very yeah. least, <laughs> um, yeah. if not actually transformative, but in a hard way to acknowledge yeah. the history of the land, it might also be restorative, you might get to a place where it becomes restorative or really beautiful to know something more about the history and what it means to be connected to this place. But I think there's just a um, a, a sorrow, a, a pain, and an acknowledgement of injustice that's um, at the base of that. I'm curious, another thing you write about a couple of places in the book is holidays. And as a way into talking about holidays, I'm wondering how you as a family practice religious and national holidays in a way that honors who you are. And again, I don't expect you to have it all figured out, but I'm just curious where you're, what you're doing these days. Yeah, it's interesting because I think it's like with many, you know, people groups, everyone assumes that all Native Americans practice these holidays a certain way, or we don't practice them, or we like like every group of people, we have many different types of people who celebrate or don't celebrate or celebrate in different ways. Um, our family loves the, um, the idea of Thanksgiving, the idea of gathering at a table and eating together. Um, and so what we do on that day is tell the truth about the holiday um, I try to make indigenous dishes as well as some other dishes. Um, so we don't really do a lot of the traditional things, American Thanksgiving dishes, mm-hmm. uh, but we make some other, other dishes like that. Like I make wild rice dishes. Um, cause that's a, a wild rice is a really important food to our people and to the Ojibwe people. And so I make, I make wild rice dishes and we make other, other dishes from other cultures and celebrate those. And then, we talk about what gratitude means every day, you know, because I think that that's a, a thing is, you know, it's like one day out of the year, Amer- it's kind of like with, with Valentine's day, you have a day out of the year where everyone's supposed to remember to love each other. Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, <laughs> what if we actually, you know, loved each other every day. Every day. Um, so that's what bothers me about holidays is, I mean, I get, I get it, but also can we be practicing gratitude every day? Because just because we can and we should, you know. Um, So yes, the holidays are full of tension for me and um, in a way that they weren't growing up, you know. And um, because when we choose to tell the truth and we choose to look into these stories, it does make things harder. You know, it it brings attention to, oh no, this is not the America I thought it was, or it isn't this place where everyone's dreams come true. It's actually a really filled with really horrible stories (laughs) and a lot of pain, you know? Um, And so I think that that's been difficult, um, but also has been 
really beautiful too. And just recognizing the tension of that. Um, and we do the same thing, you know, for Christmas, we, um, I make indigenous dishes for that as well. And we have big meals. So, you know, having feasts and meals is really important. Um, we've started to celebrate winter solstice as well and kind of the solstice of each season, because that Mm -hmm. is, you know, recognizing the seasons of the earth and the sacredness of that is also a very spiritual practice that has been around for years and years that the church hasn't always adopted because it seemed pagan. Right. Um, and so there, there are aspects of that, that I'm um, coming back to and, and learning about that's been really beautiful as well. Yeah. I just learned this Easter season that, uh, the originally there actually was some relationship between the spring equinox and Easter because of the sense of light and dark being equal at that time. Um, And that has gotten lost in church tradition, uh, probably, again, at least in part for reasons of, oh, gosh, that seems pagan. But I was like, gosh, that is so beautiful. And that connects in a different way than just like Easter eggs, (laughs) this sense of what it is to celebrate on Easter. Um, And to say, yes, we're saying light shines in darkness, but we're not saying there's no darkness anymore. You know, I I just anyway, that that gave some resonance to me in connecting Easter actually to the earth and to the seasons um, that I had not had before. Um, Which actually brings me to another question. You write about the church saying, what can we learn from indigenous peoples rather than just saying, hey, can we knock on your door and evangelize you um, or colonize you or, you know, any of these other horrible things. But so what can the church learn? But also, how can the church learn this? Because I think, um, again, one of the postures, even of well-meaning Christians, can still involve a posture of... um, arrogance in, oh, hey, I'm here to do my good works of learning about you, right? So so what can the church learn, but also how can the church learn? Yeah, I think that, I think one of the constant sort of most important things has been um, trying to help, you know, Christianity and Christians understand that, that connecting back to the earth without seeing the earth as a commodity or as this thing that we get to sort of lord over, um, actually connecting and having, you know, what we call kinship and relationship with the earth and with the creatures of the earth, with plants in our garden, with the trees, you know, with water, um, to, to listen to indigenous people as we practice that would be, um, a really great thing, I think, for the church to understand. And what comes out of that then, the how of that is, when we learn to have this reciprocal relationship with the earth, we will become more humble as human beings. It will happen. And I've, I've felt it happen even in me. And when I choose to recognize like, okay, these trees hold more knowledge than I do about the earth. These waters know more than I do about this earth. When we like really understand that. And then if you want to extend that, that means that creator knows more than I'll ever know about this earth. And I am here to be a humble listener. I am here to learn and to um, hold this space, you know, of reciprocity. That that literally can change the way that we think, the way that we engage with the earth. And then it begins to change the way we engage with other humans because we see one another as part of this, this connected whole, you know, this, uh, what it, um, 
the, I think it's called the, the great web of being, um, mm-hmm. something like that, you know, we're all, we are all connected in this. Um, we are all meant to be in, in relationship with one another. And, and I just can't say that enough because, because the church is really uncomfortable with it. And that is where some of that, like you all just worship plants and trees and, you know, without listening to what we're actually trying to say. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's been, really difficult. So I think that truly is one of, um, one of the best things we can learn as human beings is to humble ourselves toward the earth and then to let that actually flow into our other relationships. And I think that then it would change the way we run our institutions and what we give our money to and how we treat each other. I really think it would. Um, but it takes a lot of unlearning and rewiring our brains and we have to be willing to do that, you know, and that's hard work. Yeah. And I think um, within that, I'm curious because you write a little bit about learning more indigenous practices of prayer. Um, And I'm curious, again, just to hear a little bit about that and how that has shaped and affected prayer for you. Um, You know, presumably you came out of a tradition with a here's how you pray. And now you've been given some other traditions or practices and yeah, how that's all fit together or not yet. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I remember I still have journals from when I was younger and I, I have read through those before. And so many of my prayers were just, you know, listing my sins, basically. Mm-hmm. It was just like, because it was kind of that, like, before you can talk to God, you have to tell God everything you've done wrong to kind of clear the palate so you can mm-hmm. then ask for what you need or whatever, you know? And, um, and I had only ever prayed in English. So the first time I learned a Potawatomi prayer, it just, um, it just, it like opened up a different space inside of me where Mm -hmm. we could enter into prayer. And that has never changed. That's always now been, I am more comfortable in some ways praying in Potawatomi than I am in English, even just this, this prayer that I know. Um, But also what, what prayer has taught me is this, again, this spirit of gratitude and of connection to the earth and um, to creator, which is just, um, I never felt that, um, growing up in the church. I never felt that sort of, it was like, you know, uh, God is up there and he's probably mad Mm. about something and he's writing your sins on a list anyway. So you better get them all out (laughs) and then ask for what you need. But, you know, he still may be mad at you anyway, but yet he's also loving. And, you know, there's just, it was a lot, you know, yeah. and, um, and my prayers were often so filled with shame. Mm. And so can they be something different and they, you know, and it's become something different for me, but prayer is still also something I struggle with. I think just coming out of that tradition, yeah. um, can prayer just be like, can prayer be breath? Can prayer literally just be saying miigwech, just thank you. Can it just be saying thank you out loud? I think it can, you know, and that, so again, it has given me that expansiveness that I did not grow up having the, you know, I wasn't given that framework I grew up with in the Baptist church was a narrow framework of what prayer meant. And I'm grateful to, you know, be able to explore what it might mean in a different way. Yeah. Thank you. Um, well, as we're coming to the end of our time, I am 
hesitant on the one hand to ask this question just because, as we talked about with both of our books, an action plan for saving the world is not the point of the book. But you do at the end, you're writing about decolonization. And this is a quotation. You say, it will take more than indigenous peoples to do the work. It will take all people. Decolonization doesn't mean we go back to the beginning, but it means we fix what is broken now for future generations. And you've spoken to this a little bit already, but as we come to the end of this time, I am wondering what you would say it looks like to fix what is broken now. I think that in my, see, in my mind, the way that I tend to frame things is not, again, not to tell people how to do it, but to help them like find the posture of how to approach it. Mm -hmm. So I'm just, I'm going to go with that. We can take that. Because I think I, because so much of this work, there are like, obviously like collective things that we need to do fighting, you know, um, practicing anti-racism and fighting against things like ableism and homophobia and, um, you know, all these things, oppression and, um, and hate crimes. And, you know, there's so many things, there's so many isms and there's so many systems that need to be dismantled in different ways. Um, I think though, that at the, at the core of so much of, of the problem of what we have is this, this individualistic idea of this is what we all have a role to play, but we need to understand that we are connected to one another in the roles that we, that we have to do. And so my work, I don't do this work just because of me. I do it because I belong to a people, but I belong to all humans. I belong to Christianity because it's what I am. Um, Like this work is about um, community and it's about doing this, as a whole and not just on the individual level. And I think that that's, again, something that we have to like rewire in our brains. I think that it truly has broken us in a lot of ways because we think that even our well-being is only for us. And it's not, you know, even caring for ourselves has to be because we are part of a system, a unit. Like we take care of ourselves because we also are trying to learn to care for one another better. Those kinds of things like we need to not have an individualistic faith, but a faith that is actually connected to other people and connected to the earth, like that web, that belonging. And I think that that is something we have to sort of um, unlearn is that individualism, that rugged individualism Mm -hmm. where it's like me against the world. Um, And that's really hard to unlearn, but um, it will help us to understand like our place within these systems. But I don't know, I don't know how much we can do until we get to some of those places Um, because we, we can't do the work if we don't understand that we belong to each other. Yeah. So there's a framework, uh, a posture of both of our hearts, but also of our um, like, well, (laughs) in the midst of this head, heart, hands idea, but also of our heads, right? Like that, like actually understanding, connecting to people, connecting to the earth, connecting to God in a broader, expansive sense of um, who that might be and what that might mean. All of those things are going to animate action rather than just go out and start doing something um, right now. And so there's, it sounds like, uh, I know this has been true in your life. It's certainly been true in mine, but I think it would be, as you said, like in terms of getting people to um, own the work that there is to be done is saying, yeah, what are the questions that you want to ask? 
about yeah. where you, who you are, about where you are, about what is going on and has gone on and how you're connected and interconnected and all of those things in time will lead to action and it will look different from person to person and even perhaps from group to group, but it will ultimately, I believe, if we are actually beginning to be able to connect to the really real, like the, the, the true um, reality, then th- that will actually be in sync with each other rather than just continuing yeah. the brokenness. Yeah. And I, I like to remind people that, you know, this decolonization work or anti-racism work, all of, all of these things that we're fighting against this, this violent status quo that we have created, like this is lifelong work. It's not meant to be done in a week. It's not meant to be done after we read two books and then we're done. Like that's not, that's, that's dangerous to think of it that way. But I think a lot of people think that that's how it is. Like, all right, I'm going to start here and then I'm going to finish it. And that's not, this journey is, is lifelong and it'll involve us messing up and trying again and apologizing and fixing it and reading another book and then reading that book all over again. Cause I don't think we got it the first time or, you know, like, yeah. um, and that is all part of it. And, and I think we need to re- constantly remind ourselves of that as well that every time we, we do, we take the step forward or we do the action, that doesn't mean we've now reached the, the end and done all the things it'll, it, we should always be doing all of the things and not think that we have to reach some finish line. Like we're always doing it. That's what being human is. That's how we love each other better. I love that. That's how we love each other better. And that's where we're invited into. I'm actually, I have on my um, window, the a prayer from the book of Ephesians that I was thinking about when you were speaking earlier, because it talks about being rooted um, in love, rooted and established in love, and just how uh, like actually thinking about and understanding trees is going to give a different understanding. And even just the sense of like God not being up there and out there, but no, rooted in love. That means like put your roots down into who God is. Um, And that sense of the invitation to doing this work is an invitation to participate in love forever. Um, And so, no, it's not going to end because neither is love. Uh, Not because it's just so hard and it's never ending, but like, no, because that's an awesome invitation, even though it will involve, I think, some some pain along the way. It will also be something that is beautiful. So thank you for your beautiful book and for your time and for just the many um, thoughts and questions that you had to offer. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Love is Stronger Than Fear. If you appreciated today's episode, I would love to hear from you. And I will mention once again that Caitlin's book is called Native, Identity, Belonging, and Rediscovering God. You can find a link to her book, a transcript of this conversation, and references to other things that we mentioned in the show notes. I also want to thank our co-host, Breaking Ground, the editor of this podcast, Jake Hansen, and always Amber Beery, my social media coordinator who does more to support this show and every aspect of the work that I do than anyone will ever know. So grateful for all of them. And I'm grateful for you. Thank you for listening. As you go into your day today, I do hope that you will carry with you the peace that comes from believing that love is stronger than fear.